Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. Once again, we'll start with our human rights news and analysis roundup. With me is Catherine Zhu, an intern at the Human Rights Initiative. Catherine, give us the first news update. Hi, Marty. Today, I thought we could start by looking at the human rights-related commitments that emerged out of the G7 summit, which took place from 26th to 28th June in Germany. Set the scene for us, Catherine, going into the G7 summit. What were some of the big human rights issues on the agenda? Well, leaders were definitely focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the final press release also included statements on the situation in many other countries. However, the most interesting human rights commitments relate to the connections G7 leaders made between their global trade agenda and human rights. Leaders called for building resilient, sustainable supply chains that not only address climate change and other environmental concerns, but also respect labor rights. They specifically committed to supporting decent work, including fair wages, as well as accelerating efforts to remove forced labor from global supply chains. That's a big step forward for the G7, right? It was definitely a step forward for the G7, especially the focus on labor rights broadly and not just on ending forced labor. While they didn't explicitly link abusive labor practices with global supply chain disruptions, they did nod to this issue by calling for a values-led trade policy to help address chronic risks and acute shocks to global markets. It will be especially interesting to see how member states take forward the commitment to work towards an international consensus on business and human rights, including through mandatory measures that protect rights holders. This mandatory measure is probably a reference to the proposed EU directive that would require companies to carry out human rights due diligence or face legal liability. Thanks, Catherine. So I think there's one other outcome from the G7 Leaders Summit that's worth highlighting from a human rights point of view. The G7 leaders, along with the leaders of Argentina, India, Indonesia, Senegal, and South Africa, released a statement on democratic resilience. It emphasized the importance of strengthening resilience to authoritarian threats, both domestically and around the world. And I think the lineup of countries is particularly notable since several of them, for example, India and South Africa, despite being democracies, have not joined the overwhelming majority of countries that have condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the UN General Assembly and have been fairly reluctant to prominently support the Biden administration's democracy agenda. It'll be interesting to see if that results in any shift in their position on Ukraine. Moving on to the next news item, on June 30th, the International Criminal Court issued three arrest warrants in their investigation of the Russian invasion of Georgia. The warrants were for war crimes committed by three officials, 
two of whom were Russian nationals during the 2008 Russo-Georgian War. The conflict, despite lasting only five days, saw hundreds killed and thousands more displaced. So Catherine, if the conflict took place in 2008, why are arrest warrants only being issued now? That's because the ICC is a court of last resort. This means that it only steps in when national governments are unwilling or unable to hold individuals accused of war crimes to account. In this case, the court only started its investigation into possible war crimes in 2016 after Georgia indefinitely suspended national proceedings related to the conflict. At the time, officials cited their lack of access to the conflict regions and the non-cooperation by Russian officials as some of the key challenges to their work. And the ICC itself faced some delays in their own investigation due to manpower shortages and lack of experience working in Georgia. These arrest warrants are the first and possibly the only results of the ICC's investigation so far. So that raises the question, of course, as to how much this case, which is another Russian invasion resulting in widespread civilian casualties and destruction, is in any way a preview of the outcomes of the ICC investigation in Ukraine. And what do you think about that? So I think the Georgia-South Ossetia case is different than Ukraine for a couple of reasons. First is political will and international attention, both of which translate to financial and personnel resources. The ICC investigation in Ukraine opened within days of the Russian invasion. The prosecutor has already made three visits to Ukraine and has rapidly staffed up a team of investigators who are working closely with the national governments of both Ukraine and its neighbors. And so I think we could see arrest warrants in the Ukraine case within a matter of months rather than years, although those arrest warrants might be kept sealed or secret for some time. Second, and related to that, is the availability of evidence. Although, as you noted, the ICC did ultimately get some access to the situation in Georgia, the level of access and the level of documentation of abuse in Ukraine is fairly unprecedented. We have everything from cell phone pictures and videos to social media postings to drone footage to satellite imagery documenting the abuses and atrocities committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. And so I imagine that the reach of possible war crimes, investigations and suspects to investigate will be very broad in Ukraine. And I imagine we'll see far more than three individuals ultimately wanted by the ICC by the end of their investigation. But I do think there's one way in which these two cases are similar, and that is in securing defendants for trial. The ICC, of course, relies on national authorities to arrest suspects and turn them over to the court. And in both Georgia and Ukraine, several defendants are or are expected to be Russian nationals and are likely in territory controlled by Russia. Uh, We know that Russian authorities will not cooperate with the ICC which means the prosecutors will have to wait until suspects travel abroad to attempt an arrest. The ICC does not carry out trials in absentia, so we're going to have to play a patient waiting game both in the case of Georgia and Ukraine if we actually want to see defendants stand trial. So let's move on to our final topic for this week. The UN Human Rights Council held its second regular session for 22 this past month in Geneva. It's 50th since the council was formed in March 2006. Catherine, what were the issues on the table for this meeting of the HRC? I will get to the agenda of the session, but I also just first wanted to highlight what was not on the table, and that is the long-awaited report on the mass detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. That report, which has been expected to come from UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet in the fall of 2021, has been repeatedly delayed. As we're nearing the end of Commissioner Bachelet's term this August, 
and with the recent announcement that she would not run for a second term, there is understandable concern that the report would not be published at all. And no doubt she was postponing that report's release until she completed her recent trip to China. But now that that trip is completed, we'll obviously be watching closely for that report over the next few months. That's right. Turning now to the session, the council held an urgent debate on the human rights of women and girls in Afghanistan in light of the Taliban's backtracking on its earlier promises to reopen schools for girls on March 23rd. Council members pressed the Taliban to set a firm date for opening secondary and higher education schools for girls and to remove current restrictions on women's freedom of movement and their access to employment. The council also issued reports on the human rights situations in Ukraine, including in Crimea and the city of Sevastopol. These are just a few of the issues being discussed at the council, which also included the Universal Periodic Review of Member States and discussions on the human rights situations in Libya, Venezuela, and Belarus, among others. Thanks for that overview, Catherine. Let's dive deeper into the topic of the Human Rights Council with today's podcast guest. Alison Lombardo is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of International Organization Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Allison has had a long career in the U.S. government with leadership positions at USAID, the National Security Council, and with the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan at the State Department, where I had the pleasure of working with her. Allison, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thanks so much, Marty. Happy to be here. So we should note that we're recording this session literally as the final votes are being counted at the Human Rights Council. So there might be a few outcomes yet that we don't know. But before we get into the specifics about this current session, I wanted to talk a little bit about the U.S. role in the Human Rights Council itself with you. The U.S. has joined and then left and then rejoined the council over at least the last four administrations. And of course, the last U.S. administration didn't engage at the Human Rights Council at all. I wanted to ask you, was there any discussion about not rejoining the council when President Biden came into office, or was it always an assumption that you would do so? And what was the reaction from other members when the U.S. decided to re-engage? Well, as folks may know, the the U.S. uh, ran for the Human Rights Council and then was elected by over 168 members of, of the U.N. and countries around the world in October 21 and rejoined in January 2022. So we've been through two sessions as a voting member at the council. The Biden administration has been really focused on multilateral engagement, in part because we see real results when we do engage. So I think the we our commitment to democracy and human rights has been really clear. So being back at the council and raising our voice on both country situations and thematic issues, and certainly combating what we've seen over the last several years as a a democratic decline has been incredibly important uh, to our foreign policy. So I think getting back to the council uh, was a very easy decision for this administration. For the most part, I would say we've been welcomed back, of course, by our our like-minded partners in the EU with the UK, France, Germany, the Dutch, and others who are traditional partners um, and I would say also Japan and, and South Korea. We've worked really closely with them in so many areas uh, that it was very natural to re- restart that partnership at the Human Rights Council. I also want to note that our partners in Latin America, um, namely Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, but also Honduras and others, we've held extensive consultations with them before each 
HRC session and on strategic issues. Uh, we've had strategic dialogues on human rights in between sessions. And I think that engagement has really deepened and, and shown that we're back to participate to advance U.S. interests and also to work with our partners uh, around the globe on these issues. Of course, there are others who are not thrilled that we are back on the Human Rights Council, uh, the human rights abusers and violators, especially these these governments. Uh, and I'm, I'm certain that listeners can think of a few who use these bodies to cover up their own records and defend the indefensible. So we are glad to be back. And I think those who are not welcoming us know why, because we are a strong voice for human rights. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe I want to ask about one of those countries in that latter category, um, which is China. You know, since the U.S. left the Human Rights Council, China has begun playing a much more active role, um, sponsoring resolutions and, and lobbying for certain language changes. How has that affected the deliberations and the outcomes and the negotiations that you've had with other members and the content of the proposals that you're dealing with at the council? You're absolutely right, Marty. This is exactly what's happened in the United States' absence. Um, certainly, it was um, China's kind of growing aggressive engagement in the Human Rights Council and the UN generally was a trend. But with the U.S. absence, um, I really think we saw gains that, that wouldn't have happened had we otherwise been there. Uh, but our like-minded partners um, have certainly been calling attention to this concern and we've had a number of strategic engagements uh, with partners around the globe who are concerned about the degradation in the language around human rights norms in these in UN bodies generally, but particularly in the council. So I would say simply what I'm talking about is that there's an agreed set of language that describes human rights that we use in the Human Rights Council that really grounds these norms in universal values that all countries and governments have ascribed to over many years. And this kind of body of law and norms has been kind of evolved as part of that conversation with a shared understanding, um, particularly about individual rights and how that human rights are kind of inscribed in the individual and not to privilege the state or development or kind of government over individual rights. So language that we see that reflects, you know, privileging quote unquote, I would say, development over individual rights or the state over individual people is really concerning. Language lifted particularly from Chinese party or government documents put into these resolution texts is something that we're really concerned about. We've worked with our partners around the globe to identify those terms that are seeping into text and to push back against them. And so it's something that does take a considerable amount of time in the council. And we think it's incredibly important because having this shared set of terms and these kind of agreed universal values is, is part of the importance of the credibility, both of, of human rights norms, but also of the institution that is charged with bolstering those norms and values. That's really interesting. Can you give us an example of a resolution where there was this proposed shift in language and kind of how you made the case that the, you know, it was important to stick to the acceptable language and, and kind of within that, do you get pushback from countries that maybe don't ascribe to China's human rights policies, but think about human rights in more collective ways? You know, they think more about communities or societies. And, you know, how do you reconcile like interests like that? Well, first, I want to make clear that the United States does think economic, social and cultural rights are incredibly important. 
Well, often I think Americans think about civil and political rights like freedom of expression or freedom of assembly, freedom of religion and belief. Economic, social and cultural rights are also important. And we do realize that many countries, particularly in the global south, are focused on how their governments and, and countries can deliver for their people so that people have a better life. And, and I think that's an inherent part in human dignity. So what we're most concerned about is language like mutually beneficial cooperation. That's a phrase that we have seen inserted into various resolution texts. Now, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, right? Because working together to advance human rights ultimately is a goal. But what does that mean? And why, why is that term used in the text? I think that's the question. So before we talk about the session that is just concluding, I have to ask, you know, this administration, the Biden administration has been really open about the human rights challenges that we're facing here at home. And I'm wondering what you've heard from your fellow Human Rights Council members about those issues. You know, in particular, this session started just as the U.S. Supreme Court was making its decision in the Dobbs case, along with a, a host of other issues that we're facing in the U.S. What feedback are you getting from other Human Rights Council members about what's happening here in the U.S.? It's a really good question because we have found that our transparency and sharing about the difficult conversations we're having in our country about human rights and civil rights is really important, both because, you know, we are still striving for our own more perfect union and we are asking other countries to do the same with their own human rights records. We also engage with the UN and we've had a special rapporteur on minority rights visit the United States last fall. Um, we're presenting before the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination uh, this August. So the things that we are participating in the UN human rights mechanisms and opening ourselves up to constructive criticism in hopes that we improve both our own situation and that other countries will also open the door. There are certainly some notable examples of, of countries who do not let UN experts visit and provide feedback or let monitoring and reporting happen. And we think our powerful example of that kind of participation is is something um, that the United States is particularly strong on and is really can be really impactful. The recent discussions in this country on gun violence, on abortion, on systemic racism are really important because they do reflect uh, and other countries do have questions about what's going on in the United States, particularly when we're isolated in some areas around the globe. It was really striking to me that just the other day, you know, the EU parliament voted to condemn the U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, overwhelmingly, actually. And I was glad to see them do that because it's such an example of what we do um, in terms of what's happening in other countries and human rights all the time. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge that other countries can have a view about what's happening here, just as we have a view about what's happening there. And as you said, that we can put our money where our mouth is in terms of taking that criticism on board and, you know, letting in the international experts to comment on what's happening here and not being quite so defensive about the challenges we're facing. But I want to turn to the Human Rights Council session that is just concluding right now. As you said, this is the second session of the year. It was a packed agenda, everything from Afghanistan to Ukraine to a whole range of thematic issues, uh, including on things that aren't always associated with the Human Rights Council, like climate change or disinformation. Tell us a little bit about the U.S. goals going into this session. And from what you can tell at this point, how are, have these goals been met? 
I'm very proud of what the United States has done at this Human Rights Council session. I think we've we've achieved our goals, and I'll I'll go through them because I think there's both kind of an affirmative side of the agenda on kind of thematic issues where we wanted to keep the attention on and advance, um, but also some country situations that really required attention at this time. So we went into this session promoting what I call kind of the fundamental freedoms, freedom of association and assembly, freedom for peaceful protests, freedom of expression. And those resolutions were strengthened and passed by consensus. And so that's an important sign that in this age of, of disinformation and a crackdown on protesters that we can see in Russia and other places, and certainly the deterioration of democratic norms around the globe, to have the Human Rights Council go back to those fundamental issues and, and vote them through by consensus is incredibly important. One of the things that I am most proud of is that we renewed the mandate of the independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. So that's the expert that focuses on LGBTQI plus rights and very particularly on violence and discrimination against that population. And that work is critical to shining a light on something, you know, that many years ago maybe wouldn't have gotten through and, and can still be contentious around the globe, but to send a strong signal that this mandate is important. We also worked in this session to focus on the rights of women and girls. The council passed resolutions on discrimination against women and on female genital mutilation and other challenges that women are facing and held a special session, uh, interrupted the debate to focus on women and girls in Afghanistan. And given the, the downward trajectory and the new restrictions that the Taliban continues to impose on women in Afghanistan, it was incredibly important for the international community to shine a spotlight on that and to say that this is unacceptable. We also worked throughout the session to keep the focus on the war in Ukraine and Russian aggression, and also to speak out uh, with 47 other countries about the repression that's taking place within Russia. So peaceful protesters have been jailed. There's been a crackdown on civil society and a silencing of independent media. And so while most of our attention is unfortunately focused on the tragedy that Russia is perpetrating in Ukraine, Russian dissidents and activists and human rights defenders are also under threat and it's worth lifting them up. And we were able to do that. We joined with uh, many other like-minded countries to highlight human rights abuses in China. Um, so not to lose sight of human rights abuses of the Uyghur community in Xinjiang and other areas like Hong Kong and Tibet. The United States also worked on resolutions related to Belarus, Syria, Libya, Eritrea, and Sudan. And we're proud of doing that country-specific work. We've spoken uh, very regularly about our concern about the anti-Israel bias of the Human Rights Council. Israel has gotten disproportionate attention from the council, and we've been very clear that we think this is unacceptable and a priority for reform. We've worked really closely with the Israelis on addressing the kind of regular resolutions that come up and making sure less time is spent on them uh, and building a coalition to, to tackle some of the reform issues. But most recently, we joined with more than 20 countries to in a joint statement that focused on the open-ended commission of inquiry that was created last year. And we've emphasized that this is, you know, breaking with regular institutional norms. Uh, and we think certainly a symptom of anti-Israel bias at the council. We've got several other partners who are also concerned about this, and we think that's a first step at making progress on this issue. So that's an incredible list of priorities, and it's a broad 
you know, range of issues. Um, give us a little bit of a behind the scenes view of how you approach these sessions. How do you set the priorities? How do you decide what to focus on at the Human Rights Council versus elsewhere? Um, and then how do you build those coalitions to make sure that the priority issues and the priority votes are actually successful? So first, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, the situation on the ground demands the attention of the UN's foremost human rights body. So I would say certainly the war in Ukraine, the crisis in Afghanistan, they have to be addressed by the council. The council needs to focus on that. So that's the, one of the first things we look at. Second is how to advance U.S. priorities. So the focus on fundamental freedoms is really important. So we're looking for opportunities in the council agenda uh, to focus on thematic issues, including racial justice or inclusion of persons with disabilities. Um, so we were able to do this with a freedom of assembly and association resolution this time that we led. But there's also um, many other opportunities to do that. And so we're promoting an affirmative agenda that promotes U.S. values and democratic and human rights norms shared by our like-minded partners. And then finally, the Human Rights Council can create a variety of mechanisms to advance human rights on the ground or respond to situations. Those mechanisms for the most part, are renewed annually. So we have a regular agenda of those that need to be renewed. Um, but oftentimes there are situations that either a country is asking for technical cooperation and, and support. And so there can be a kind of cooperative approach. Like in this time in Libya, the Libyan government is welcoming OHCHR to work with them on their human rights situation. But then there are other situations that require kind of a mechanism to keep attention on it sometimes kind of opposed by the government, like Eritrea. And so renewing those mandates and making sure those mechanisms are both reporting to the council and getting the support that they need to continue kind of fills out the rest of our agenda. And what we do in advance of each session is meet with our, our partners, have consultations about kind of our thematic and country priorities, their priorities, and figure out where we have shared interests. Um, sometimes we know a resolution will pass by consensus. Other times we know things will be more difficult and we'll, we'll go into kind of what we call a, a vote whipping situation where we start to count the votes of the 47 members in the council. In the council, you only need more yes than no votes. So getting an understanding of other countries' positions and their interests on these resolutions is critical as we, we go towards a vote. Are there any issues that you wish you could put on the council's agenda, but you don't think they're prepared to take up or you think you still have some work to do before it would be successfully addressed there? You know, there are a number of issues, kind of emerging issues that we do think that the council needs to tackle. Um, and we're working to figure out how to best do that. So I would say um, there are many tech and digital issues that the council could usefully weigh in on. We've given some start at that in different resolutions, but I do think there's more work to be done there. I'm also really concerned about the issue of transnational repression. So states reaching to attack human rights defenders and dissidents outside of their borders, uh, maybe those who have fled repression. I think that's a human rights issue uh, around the globe that the council could, could take up. So you referenced a few times the sort of interesting mix of countries on the council, right? There's some like-minded countries, uh, and then there's some uh, pretty egregious human rights abusers on there. Um, one of the 
sort of landmark um, achievements this year at the council was the vote to remove Russia by the UN General Assembly as a result of the invasion of Ukraine to actually take an egregious human rights abuser off the Human Rights Council. Um, It's, I think, only the second time that's happened. I think that happened to Libya. But do you think that starts to set an expectation of a standard of human rights performance for members of the council? Is that a direction that the U.S. is interested in going in, or was that a fairly unique situation? That's a good question, Marty. It was pretty outstanding that over 90 countries voted to remove a P5 member from a U.N. body, the one on human rights, in particular because Russia was using the Human Rights Council as a platform for its disinformation and propaganda, and many members of the council were just disgusted by it while Russia raged a violent war, killing Ukrainian civilians um, right before their eyes. We thought this was an incredibly powerful signal. HRC membership we see as a privilege of UN members. You have to be elected. It is not a right, and that's a very important difference. The way we want the council to function, and particularly a reform we think is useful, is to get those who promote and are focused on human rights and advancing human rights and making progress on elected to the body. We do think it's important to have a broad view and global debate on human rights issues and having kind of a a wide range of governments and countries represented is incredibly important. So while I do not expect this to be a regular occurrence, I do think it's important that the General Assembly took action in this kind of extraordinary circumstance. And I do think it's something uh, that many members of the council will be thinking about. Yeah, I think it's a space to watch going forward as, you know, including as new members get elected, um, whether that is increasingly a criteria that voting blocks take into consideration, for example. So just taking a step back then, and thinking about the U.S. role in the council more generally, how important a tool is it in the toolkit of the U.S. administration and of President Biden's human rights agenda, this engagement in the council? And how does it fit in with this issue of tackling global democratic backsliding and promoting sustainable democracy? Everything we do at the Human Rights Council is related to supporting human rights and democratic institutions. So it's improving our relationships, not only with partners who already have strong democracies, but also with those who strive to improve their own respect for human rights and the rule of law at home. I think, you know, the president has talked a lot about how we're at this inflection point and what kind of world future generations want. And human rights and those values have provided a strong bedrock for the world that we want to see, the one where that's peaceful and prosperous and grounded in respect for human dignity. It's something that the Human Rights Council works on. So not only does the council keep human rights issues on the agenda and respond to some of the most egregious situations, it also helps reinforce respect for human rights norms and democratic norms and and those types of values that we want to see. And we think it provides a tool to advance human rights on the ground. If nothing else, the council provides civil societies a platform to hold their governments responsible to and accountable to. We think it's valuable to stand up for the rights of all, including women and girls, members of the LGBTQI community, members of ethnic and religious minorities, those living with disabilities and other marginalized groups, and that the Human Rights Council can promote accountability and can help practically advance human rights. So we absolutely see it as fundamental to the global human rights agenda and and the president's focus on democracy. Absolutely. Well, Allison, thanks so much for being with us, for giving us kind of an insider's view of how the administration is thinking about the Human Rights Council, how the Human Rights Council actually works. 
um, and how you're leveraging it to um, to push forward on the global human rights and democracy agenda. Um, congratulations on the success of this session. I hope you get a little bit of a break before the fall session uh, will be upon you before you know it. But thanks again for being with us today. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.